0: brother is watching you.
1: Ooh. <laughs> Listeners, you are warned. This program is not to be
0: listened to. Welcome to 1984 Today, your one-stop shop for all things dystopian. I'm your host, Mike Friedman. In this podcast, we explore dystopian trends in art and society and the impact of the novel 1984 on our culture. Among other things, we'll be looking at surveillance, censorship, free speech, historical revisionism, the role of the individual in society, and group-led conformist thought, but don't despair. We'll try to keep our sense of humor along the way. Today we're joined by Dorian Linsky, who's written an excellent book called The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984. Dorian is a well-known journalist and author from London, England. He co-hosts the podcast's Origin, Story, and Oh God, What Now? And in the past, he's written for The Guardian, GQ, and Mojo magazine, often with a focus on music. His previous work includes a history of protest music called 33 Revolutions Per Minute. And someone with a good eye for a pun is always welcome here. Dorian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No problem. The The best place I can think of to start is among the many wonderful turns of phrases in your book, you described the novel 1984 as the tallest building in the city of nightmares.
1: Right. Yes, because uh, the the Ministry of Truth is the tallest building um, in uh, um, Airstrip One, and it was based on the Senate House physically it was sort of based some extent on the senate house in london which i think was the um, second tallest building after st paul's and obviously a very modern modern one um, and that yeah no that actually gets to why i was interested in writing the book in the first place because actually it came from uh, a curiosity about dystopian literature more than a curiosity about or well obviously i became absolutely obsessed uh, with all well, <laughs> the man afterwards but in, but initially like what i have realized in the in the the stuff that I like to write is a lot of the time tracking influence and tropes and where ideas come from like i got really i realized i just get really obsessed with like uh you know first citations i've become like a real o e d nerd, you know working out okay like so where this word that we use all the time. And for example, dystopia. You know, it, it first gets coined in the 19th century, and then doesn't really take off until um, the 70s and 80s. Uh, and it's really pushed by like really a couple of writers, like Martin Amos and Anthony Burgess, to start using it a lot. And for me, that kind of that kind of thing, like oh, Orwell would not have called this book a dystopia, mm. I find really fascinating. And so I was just trying to work out. We take so much from 1984, um, but what was Orwell taking from? And you know w- what was his reading? What was the, what were the kind of terrain of utopias and anti-utopias at that time? And then also, where do we misunderstand 1984? So the Apple advert, which I write a bit about from what well, was from 1984, and it's called 1984. Um, if you actually look at it, it's really not. Orwellian so much as based on like um it's more like an HG Wells kind of dystopia in terms of its its design. And it's really interesting how that is almost like the perfect example of what you think 1984 looks like. Maybe if you haven't read it the way it's become <laughs> the sort of the generic dystopian and touchstone and. I thought I was going to track try and track as much as I could like Orwell's thinking Orwell's ideas how do you get to this after 50 60 years of people writing what we would now call dystopias how does he basically give us the template which remains the template to this day even though there are all kinds of dystopian fiction and you know something like the Hunger Games or whatever is a is a completely different vision really it's not it's not orwellian Um, And yet 1984 is the one that's when things are going badly. People go, Oh, this is like 1984. Um, So I love that contrast between the, the sort of the facts of Orwell's life, the facts of the writing, the the ideas that went into it, the actual text of the book, um, which is much more sort of complicated and, you know, sort of sometimes enigmatic than people think versus the huge reputation and what people think that it's about. Mm. And
0: something that made a a very strong impression on me in your book was that at the at the beginning in the introduction you say that it's I forgive me if I don't get the quote exactly right but you say that it's a book that's more known about than truly known. Mm. And then over the course cuz I've read 1984 a few times over the course of my life. Like mm. you discovered it when I was a teenager and I was quite surprised even after reading it a few times over the course of reading your book about it, spotting things you pick out from the novel. And I was like, I don't remember that being in there. It's it's like it's morphing in my mind mm. in relationship to my reality that I live in as I live with the book and I forget yeah. parts or I misremember parts. Um, and you also said in your introduction that it's a damn sight more relevant than it should be. Yeah. So I was wondering if, as a kind of jumping off point then, when you say that it's a book that's more known about than known, the way you just mm. described, so what if we have someone joining us who isn't totally versed in the novel, mm. and obviously it's not like a required reading to for this podcast,
1: Yeah.
0: how would you – Summarize the book as you feel and understand it, based on what we're here to discuss.
1: Well, the the the, the great thing about it, the problem is, is it's a lot of different things at once. Hmm. Um, so it's partly, um, it's partly a thriller. It's partly the kind of novel that Orwell was writing previous to that, whether that's Burmese days or Keep the aspergistra Flying, about a kind of fairly mediocre character who rebels against the system uh, that he inhabits and uh, the rebellion ultimately fails. So this is the kind of novel that he'd written quite a few times before. It's also, I think, an essay a kind of thesis about totalitarianism, which um, was still fairly new. There were a few books about totalitarianism, um, but they were quite niche. There weren't any kind of, um, you know, bestsellers explaining the connections between Nazism and Stalinism. And it came out. This came out just before Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism. So for a lot of people, this was the first explanation of what Hitler and Stalin had been doing that they would have read. Mm. And it is also a satire that he was really into um, Swift, and he described it as a satire. And the tradition of dystopias or anti-utopias, as they would have been called, was a satirical one. So there's, it's not like a very, considering he was a very funny writer, it's, it's like the least funny of his books. But there is still satirical elements in there that perhaps get missed you know i never until i was reading it for the however many you know um, teeth time you know just the joke about um somebody is somebody's job is to organize the spontaneous demonstrations <laughs> like that that's like like it's good satirical joke but it's thrown in there very low key uh, and and it, so everything about it is more complicated than you think. So the basic plot is this guy, Winston Smith, who is a kind of fairly unpleasant, mediocre character who works in the Ministry of Truth, rewriting old newspapers, um, and then gets this sort of rebellious spirit. But it's a, ve- it's a very internal rebellion. It basically consists of him writing a diary and trying to express what he actually thinks because Orwell's point is that in a totalitarian regime, it's not just um, your fear of being arrested by the secret police. It's like that fear gets into your brain. And so there's certain things that you can't say and you can't write, and therefore you you sort of forget how to think those things. So his rebellion is really internal. Then he meets Julia, um, this sort of rebellious, but in a completely cynical, hedonistic way. And then between them, the sort of coward and the cynic end up getting this kind of real courage, um, and this this is fed by a character called O'Brien, who works for the party, um, who sort of says he's in contact with the with the underground, you know, the um, the brotherhood, this revolutionary secret organization um, led by Emmanuel Goldstein, who is this Trotskyist figure um and then there's this great betrayal at the end of part two where you realize that actually um spoiler coming that uh, o'brien was never you know was never working with the brotherhood he is a pure party loyalist and both winston and julia are arrested and then in part three um we get the interrogation of uh, O'Brien interrogating Winston in the Ministry of Love. They've obviously all got these very ironic names. And it's how he gets broken. It's how he gets thoroughly mentally destroyed by O'Brien. But the weirdness of the book is how much you um, don't, how much you cannot confirm, how much you don't know and you cannot confirm. And the key to me was when he's trying to write his diary, he doesn't know that it's the year 1984. And I think that's such, that is such a key fact that we Mm. don't know for sure that the book 1984 takes place in 1984, that you can't even know exactly what the date is. And so people can argue, uh, yeah, they, they argue all the time. It's like, well, was Julia um, just a plant all along, you know, was she just working for the party all along? Um, How much, So much that we are told about what is really going on in Airstrip One. We're being told by O'Brien. And the whole point of O'Brien is that, you know, he's this tremendous liar. So why do you believe him when he's saying, sometimes he's saying something which we know is a a totalitarian lie. And yet other times he's going, well, this is actually the truth of the identity of Big Brother or Goldstein or the Brotherhood or, you know, Julia." And first time I read it, I I was like, I just believed all of that. I was like, oh, okay, this is where Orwell's explaining what's been going on. But then you think, but hang on, the explanations are in the mouth of the biggest liar in the whole book. And once you get to that, and then you look at the way that there's all these, um, it's full of like memories and dreams and mysteries and confusion. And there's actually very little that you could say if you're doing like a plot summary There's very little that you can say without qualification. This is who this character is. This is what they think. This is what definitely happened, which of course makes sense because uh, Winston's whole job is rewriting what happened, creating characters that didn't exist, deleting people that did exist. And so I think the thing that people miss, and I'm not being condescending here because I definitely missed it, like probably the first couple <laughs> of times I read it before really, really thinking hard about it, is that the whole book is is basically challenging you to work out what is definitely true mm. and what is definitely a lie. And what is um, is what is deliberately ambiguous. We, we're not I don't think we're ever meant to know. Was Big Brother a real person once? Is he now Is he still alive? Because we never see big we see pictures of Big Brother or something mm. purports to be Big Brother but he's not really a, uh, he's not a physical presence. And so once you realize that, that you know it might not be 1984 Big Brother might not exist. Uh, those are really basic things. And so when it comes down to going like well, what are Julia's motives? well we're, we're, not, we're not meant to be able to say for sure. And that's why I feel like it's not, I'm not just talking about people who use phrases for me on Twitter, never having read the book and, and literally just getting it wrong. I'm talking about people who know the book, um, but you make certain assumptions. And I think the whole part of Orwell's technique is, is really showing you that these assumptions are, um, could, could be entirely false the if
0: if i'm remembering it correctly what you call in your book orwell's aim which was to evoke the nightmare feeling caused by the disappearance of objective truth
1: yes and that has to come across to the reader where you just don't know who to you don't know who to trust but it's more sort of existential because there's a great you know with the betrayal he's betrayed by the guy that runs the the junk shop, which is his sort of haven, because it represents it represents the past and it represents a world outside the party. And so you get this, because he was reading thrillers, he was influenced to some extent by by just really exciting spy thrillers. Uh so obviously don't trust O'Brien, don't trust Mr. Charrington, the junk shop owner, but it's so much deeper than that. It's like, well, what what information can you trust? And there's very, very little in that and this is why he is able to um this is where this is where the mental collapse comes in because o'brien basically just chips away at everything that he thinks he knows Mm. if somebody is under interrogation and they've got a very solid sense of of who they are and what is real um they can resist more easily whereas if you just don't know anymore a lot of this comes from uh, Stalin's show trials and a book, Darkness at Noon by Arthur Kersler, who became one of Orwell's friends, and in that a party member gets accused of treachery against the party and after a certain point he doesn't know if he's guilty or innocent. <laughs> he's like yeah, maybe, like maybe, I, maybe I am a traitor like if the party, I believe in the party and if the party says that I'm a traitor who am I to disbelieve the party who I am so loyal to. And so his loyalty makes him believe that he just must be a traitor. So this is stuff that was actually happening. This is not just thought experiments from for, for mm. well This is based on the kind of the the really, you know, that nightmarish disintegration of reality um, that Stalin happened Stalin, to in a different way happened under Hitler.
0: And as you say, uh, very eloquently in your book and as is clear now, it's effectively a hallmark of totalitarian regimes in general that the first hill that must be conquered in a way is the human mind, the way we see reality, the way we use Mm. language, the way we see our own history, our own ideas about whatever society we live in. All of that has to be kind of fully captured and twisted to the goal of whatever party is taking control.
1: Well, one of the um, crimes in um, uh, Putin's Russia at the moment is describing the, the war in Ukraine as a war. So to say in Russia that there is a war in Ukraine or that Russia invaded Ukraine can get you put in jail. I mean, it could not be more, it's not sophisticated. It could not be more blatant. It's like the state says that this is not a war and therefore it's criminal to say that it is. Now, Putin's Russia is not strictly totalitarian, but it uses a lot of the same techniques. And, and that's why Russia is so famous for disinformation. Mm. You know, um, and and we see this, Obviously, I mean, I'm sure you'd want to get onto this later, but you know in the, in in the online era you just you can see how um so much of so much of the t- the technique is not necessarily even imposing a new truth on you but demolishing the very idea that there there is a truth and in that case you you believe what it is easiest to believe so it's not necessarily like you have to believe that there isn't a war in ukraine but to all intents and purposes you do Hmm. you know because of the information environment because of the the threat from the authorities and this is what happened in in Soviet Russia is that people went around believing not not really well no they weren't fully believing but they went around basically acting as if they believed that certain things were true without any real commitment to those to the truth of those things it's a it's a kind of mid midway space and that's where it's That's where it's nightmarish. It's not just like there's truth and there's falsehood. It's like there's this middle ground where these categories and Orwell wrote about in some essays where those categories just simply don't exist. And in fact, if I I hope I understood it correctly,
0: but something that blew my mind uh, that I found out from your book was that the formulation, which is like central to 1984 and which is used and misused nowadays as well with very frequent uh, effect, two plus two equals five. Mm. And you pointed out that I think it was Eugene Lyons who found that that originated when Stalin was trying to achieve the outcome of a five-year plan in four years. And so, he was in Soviet Russia seeing people with like banners or placards that said two
1: plus two equals five, meaning in four years we'll reach the five-year plan. Yes. The interesting thing to me is that two plus two equals five as a formulation to sort of represent something absurd and obviously untrue is something that I knew had been in Dostoevsky. I recently found it in a letter to Thomas Jefferson from 1813. Uh, It it was obviously, it obviously been around for a long time, And so it just seems almost, uh, you know, almost ridiculous. It it was hard to believe that Stalin literally put that up as a, as a slogan. It's like taking, it's like having a slogan, like the sky is green or something that even a child would go, but this isn't true. (laughs) Um, But, you know, unless, you know, I suppose, unless uh, Eugene Lyons was, was making it up, that does seem to be, you know what happened, and because Orwell wrote a uh, a review of Eugene Lyons's book, uh, that does seem to be you know probably where where he got it from, or certainly something that would have been in his mind. And one thing I try and insist on in the book is that people, when people go, "Oh, things are becoming like 1984," as if he just invented all of these bad things. And, you know, and now the real world is becoming like that. So he didn't really, he invented very little. Most of what he was putting in there was based on stuff that he had read about Russia and Germany. Virtually everything that takes place in there had happened. Like Margaret Atwood says about The Handmaid's Tale, it's like she didn't put in there anything that had not happened somewhere in history or indeed was not or was not happening at the time she wrote the book somewhere else in Iran or, or whatever. So it was either Salem witch trials or it was happening in Iran. Or and, and it's the same principle with Orwell that pretty much everything in there is true. And that to me makes it more shocking that it was not a prophecy of how badly things could go wrong. It was a sort of satirical account of what had already happened. And interestingly
0: enough, Referring back to what we were saying earlier about it being illegal to call the invasion of Ukraine an invasion or a war in mm-hmm. Russia, there was a trial that recently finished in which I believe the guy's name is Vladimir Karamurza was convicted and sent to prison for, I think, 20 or 25 years. And among the charges were exactly that, that hmm. he referred to it using the wrong nomenclature. And he was allowed to give a kind of final address to the court before they bundled him off in the back of a van. And in his actual speech to the court, I believe he says almost verbatim or words to the effect of one day in russia two plus two will equal four again so even wow even in these disparate places even in these countries where as you cover in the book 1984 was banned for the best part of half a century uh we see this coming up again and again that there are these basic examples of what represents reality or something we can all agree on and when someone turns up and seizes the reins of power and takes a hammer to that or begins the process of pouring acid in the gears of seeing the world as it is there's something almost elemental at least for me almost physical in terms of revulsion that i feel when i see that happening it's it, it's an offense in a real like a really deep way
1: to my idea of living in a world right yeah, it it, it it it's only when that's under attack that you just realise how um you know generally how fortunate you are I right? I am to live in a, a, a country where um there are you know political lies and there are arguments about things. But there is a general understanding um of what is and isn't true. Now obviously there are so many um Online ecosystems and and sort of filter bubbles where people can convince themselves of something that is entirely Untrue and that is the scary thing For uh, people in I think Britain and America now. I don't know. I mean obviously I say Because it depends if you get for example another Trump presidency um, And whether there would be more of a state assaults um, But then what's interesting
0: in that, right? But what's interesting in that surely is there was an understandable and perfectly reasonable resistance to a sitting president being so overtly dishonest. Mm. And that created, in a sense, a much more obvious kerfuffle in the media about things like truth and the the necessity of journalism. But then when Trump was defeated – and replaced, it it was a Biden White House that tried to establish the disinformation governance board, right? With uh with the so-called singing censor. <laughs> uh and, and so what was interesting is that the politics changed. But the underlying uh the underlying trajectory or the underlying logic, which is that the machinery of the state is reaching the point where it cannot permit Unaudited statements to be made public seems to be continuing and ongoing, right? Well,
1: I think, but, uh, well, I think they're, di- I think they I think they're really different things. But obviously, you know, there's a there's a perspective question. So, for sure. example, I think in the in the book, um, I talk about when there was calls for Facebook to do more um, about disinformation. This is a few years ago, and they have, in fact, done more about it. And a guy who worked there went. Well, I don't think we want to set up a ministry of truth, you know, where we decide what is and what isn't true. Now, of course, the whole the whole point of the ministry of truth is that they're deliberately uh, replacing things that are true with things that are not. But it it's all um, it, it's such a it's it's all a matter of perspective. I mean, the truth should not be a matter of perspective. But but everybody says they believe in the truth.
0: <laughs> so, you know,
1: conspiracy theorists, they absolute they're always, you know, they will quote Orwell and they will go, you know, that you know, and they will say the truth is being hidden from us and all we want is the truth and we want the truth about um you know, say vaccines or the truth about the war in Ukraine or the truth about any um mm. any political issue, the truth about uh the the the, the um authenticity of the 2020 election results. And so it's not as if you can just go, oh, I am pro truth and Orwell is on my side and my enemies couldn't possibly find anything in 1984 because they see it and they go, well, this is just about how the government is always lying to you. Um, And so it's, so that's why a lot of you get a lot of um, 94 is a lot of fans on the, on the right in the Trump camp. It has fans um, among conspiracy theorists. It has, you know, sort of fans everywhere because they they all think they're like, well, we, the truth is great and we have the truth. Now Orwell's writing about truth in his essays, which are attached to the book in some editions and I almost think should be, should appear in every edition. There are certain Mm. e essays that really should come with every edition of 1984 because you really, he really gets to articulate some of those ideas more fully and you know he does really make a clear distinction between how always there's going to be disagreements in politics but when you start demolishing the actual basis of reality and when you when it becomes beyond evidence so for example there is no evidence that the 2020 election was stolen there just there just isn't it it, it does not exist hmm. So when people keep insisting on that and go, well, this is the, the, the truth. And it's you, you do have to come back to, you know, really <laughs> this is the scientific method. It's like, what is your evidence? And there are things that are true and untrue. You cannot say the abortion debate. I appreciate there are different opinions on that. And if you are a Catholic, for example, you're going to believe that, um, you know, life begins at conception. And there's no scientific, you can't say, oh no, it doesn't, because that really does get into the realm of sort of faith and belief. And I'm, you know, I support abortion rights, but I, I at least understand where the other people are. Sure. But when there's people that are just in, saying, insisting that something is true for which there is no evidence, mm. um, then I think you can draw more of a clean line. And I would not presume to speak to all, for Orwell, all but. You know, I think he would have been pretty clear. It's like, well, the 2020 election result was not stolen. Please do not quote 1984. <laughs> but then I think two things
0: that come from that for me is that, first of all, something that, and it might just be what I see, it may not be a fact about the media landscape, but there is a kind of overemphasis on credentials that has led to a very deep- and abiding, and in certain cases, perfectly justified mistrust of certain media organs and certain journalists or types of journalism. And so, the although I'm not arguing with what you said because I disagree with it in an absolute sense, all I'd say is that when we get to the point of, and this is in a way what's so worrying about the world as it is right now, when you get to the point of, okay, well, where's the evidence? How are you backing up your position? We have a world where there are some people that just don't accept on mm. both sides evidence because of who it's coming from or where that person. So in a sense, there's a, there's a, a tendency to, sure. as we say in, uh, in football, there's a tendency to play the man and not the ball a lot of the time in where debunking or dispute comes in. And I I don't know the ins and outs of the 2020 thing, but that speaks in my, in my mind, it speaks to a deeper point that you make very clear in your book and that you just touched on here, which is when Orwell was talking about what worried him and what was at the root of totalitarianism, he was really focused on power and power and the way it's exerted and the way it's held on to and why people do that is at the heart of these kind of control systems. Yeah. Uh the there's a yes, you you said, I think it's your words in the book, it is power that removes the possibility of challenging power. And so to return to the point, I think When you said, yes, well, the Ministry of Truth was engaged in erasing facts about the past and replacing them with lies, that's true. But it was Mm. a a legal or political infrastructure that allowed there to be any type of institution with the power to amend anything that allowed them to exert that power. So in a sense, you could say, well, as long as there's a Ministry of Truth that's making sure all the lies are taken away – and and rewriting or preventing the publication of provable mm. untruths, then in a sense, we're kind of back at the 2001 Patriot Act point where it's like everyone was going, well, as long as the guns of the, the anti-terrorist state are pointed outward at the world and not inward at American citizens, then there's no problem. And then where are we 23 years later? <laughs>
1: But I mean but this is the I mean this is obviously so much bigger than the 1984, but this is the enormous um you know this is the enormous challenge that if you are uh you know generally like in support of um free speech um and you don't want so you don't want too many sort of controls on what people say and, and state controls. The challenge is um what, how do you respond to the, the, the willingness of so many people to believe things that, uh, for which there is no mm. evidence um, because it suits them? Now, where I would cite Orwell here is a lot of the things that you believe did not suit him. He, was, he made a lot of enemies, he was often quite lonely, like, he didn't have a tribe. If you were on the left, as he was, (laughs) uh, and you really hated Stalin and you wrote Animal Farm, then it was very hard to get published, you know, or you fought in the Spanish Civil War and came back and went, it's unbelievable what the communists are doing. Obviously, I oppose the fascists, Mm -hmm. but there are all these crimes that the communists are committing, and the kind of orthodox left in Britain was like, well, this doesn't this doesn't suit us at all. This is, you know, this is a, you know, existential battle between the left and the right. And we really don't want to hear about bad things that the that the left are doing. So, but he was going, but this is just, it, I've seen it. This is literally what is happening. And so, you know, his position, and is a position that I try and uh, follow, which is that it's not about, um, it's not always about like, It's not both both sides looking for things that confirm their beliefs. You know, so if I, for example, take the sort of chat of climate change and climate denial, I would very much, I would probably be a lot happier if Mm -hmm. I did not believe in uh, man-made global warming. You know, it just wouldn't be a thing that I need to worry about. Now, the assumption, I think, from climate deniers is that someone like me who does like 90-odd percent of, you know, scientists believe that it's real, we're doing it because actually we just want to sort of take people's right cars away or, you know, control people. And, you know, it has to be, a, there's like a conspiracy and we only believe in it in order to get this,
0: this power. But, but, but I, I agree. I agree completely with what you're saying, but in a sense, you've touched perfectly on what really is potentially the, the heart of, Of the question we're looking at, which is, at least in my opinion, it's one thing for you to say, yes, we get accused of this. When when I say I would prefer if we did X, Y, and Z to combat climate change, I get accused of being on the side of doing all these things that I don't want to do to people. And I'm not believing what I believe because I want to do them, them to people. But it would be disingenuous, just as it would be disingenuous for someone to look you straight in the eye and be like, no, you're doing this because you do believe this, even if you don't. It would be equally disingenuous to deny that a great deal of the proposed mitigation strategies and solutions do involve things that a lot of people are understandably concerned about, like centralization of power, supranational authority interfering in domestic affairs, and actually reducing mobility of people and the level at which they can live in terms of their consumption and their emissions. So it's not that it's true that you would wish that on anyone. And I don't think you'd be the type of guy to deny that a lot of the strategies are based around doing things that would, but it's that's what I mean when people say no, we have no plan, and people who are arguing against them think that's dishonest, and then there is this mutual
1: suspicion, right? For me, it's about well, is there a problem? Is the problem demonstrably true? Like, we've known this, well, what the, the, the evidence has been there since, um, you know, since the late 1950s, you know, since the Keeling curve. Like, we know this. Lyndon Johnson talked about it so. Like if somebody just goes, do you know what? Yeah, there is man-made global warming and it's going to cause all kinds of problems. But I am um, such a you know libertarian or whatever that I refuse to do any of these following things to do, do anything about it. Like that's a position. Uh, but often because there's a sort of cognitive dissonance and that just sounds like you're, you're kind of, um, it just sounds like you're very selfish and uh, want things to get very bad, you know, climate wise then so many of these people turn to a denial position because mm. then there's the dissonance is relieved. And they go, oh, well, we don't have to do this stuff because the problem doesn't exist. Now, that is, you know, coming back to Orwell here, it's like, of course, the reason why a lot of communists didn't want to believe all this stuff about Stalin was because, like, it was super inconvenient. They believed in socialism. There was only one socialist or country that called itself socialist uh, in the world at that time. Therefore, to be a socialist meant that you had to, in their logic, support Russia meant that you had to therefore deny make excuses for or deny what Stalin was doing so that you then had to build the truth around your Assumptions now, I don't think uh, a lot of the time climate being a good example You know most people do really would like you they 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 are quite into like personal liberty and um they don't particularly want to make sacrifices. And everybody would like to be able to sort of fly as much as they like and consume as much as they like and all of that. But, you you know, you do have like a, a large section of the public that goes, well, there is a problem, and um, but I'm really not keen on a lot of the solutions. Like, that's understandable. What to me is, is not legitimate, is not sort of forgivable, is people that just go, as a result, I'm going to deny... All this evidence that there is a problem. Like it's totally fine to be angry that you've lost an election. But that's different to just going to resolving that anger by going, ah, yeah, but actually we didn't lose the election. It was stolen. You know, those those kind of things. So for people like that to sort of cite all well, if if you're if you're sort of be- you're believing the bending the truth simply to suit your political priors, um, then that is in no sense in the spirit of, you know, the writer or the book. You sort of almost know that you are in the sort of tradition of Orwell when there's things that come up that are actually quite, um, are quite politically difficult for you or, you know, psychologically difficult.
0: I, I, I completely agree with you. And I think in a way in your book, I think we can put a name on this thing that we're both feeling our way around. In your book, you talk about a play, interestingly enough, called Take Back Your Freedom, I think it's called. And so in there, you quote a character named Clayton oh, yeah. as saying a line I'll, I'll share in a moment. So I think maybe we could call this the Clayton fallacy, maybe, right? Which is where the character says, it is necessary, therefore it will be true. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which, which, which really gave me the heebie jeebies when I read it. Right. Because it was so perfectly formulated. And the thing is, I've heard that fallacious way of looking at things on all sides. Right. So I agree with you. That's, I don't like the things people say we need to do about climate change. Therefore, there is no climate change. So, right. you know, what needs to be true is that there is no climate change because what is necessary is that I give up things I don't want to give up. Right. Mm. That's totally legit. But I've also spoken with environmentalists where when we discuss the real nuance and subtlety of what's happening worldwide and who is making emissions and where cuts need to come from for them to really be meaningful, Yeah, and I point out that that would mean either relying on people who transparently have said or obviously won't do things to do them. The response I got was literally exactly the same. In fact, the exact line I heard from one lady I was uh, speaking with a few years ago, and this was a woman that worked with uh, a department in government writing guidelines for, for uh, climate action. And after talking about the fact that, you know, it's an international effort. It's an international problem. It requires international, uh, uh, actions that can't necessarily be counted on when you look at emissions trends and consumption and everything. And she said, yes, well, that's, I was just trying to get her to admit that it was true, what I had said. And in the end, she went, well, well, of course it's true, but it's not very helpful, is it? And that was the Clayton fallacy right there as well, right? Yeah. It's necessary we make changes. Therefore, it cannot be true that there are
1: obstacles to those changes. Do you see what I mean? So it's- Yeah, well, this is this is why I'm not. I'm not a great joiner. I'm not a great, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly drawn to sort of uh, ideologies and um, groups and projects. And sometimes I wish I was more- of a of an activist and somebody that more could sign up to political projects. But I do, you know I obviously get turned off. I I've, I've got my I definitely know where my sympathies lie. But I of course I, I do get turned off by um the denial um the denial of certain things just because they just because they don't fit. You know, and I think but this is why it's a mess, this is why thinking about politics is really hard and why it's just a giant mess and always has been, and it's why I like writing like history books.
0: Mm.
1: You know, one of the, the, the one of the consolations, one of the things that makes me feel better is reading about an argument in the 1930s or the 70s or the 1890s, and going like, oh right, it's the same. It's the same thing it's the same cognitive errors it's the same clashes. It would be very, very easy if you really could just go well here are the here are the true things and here are the false things and 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 the, I'm only going to believe in the true things like that's' I don't, the idea that there, there is this, this this really obvious solution to uh, politics and to human psychology that just nobody's found yet um is, is, of course, nonsense. And where I sometimes worry about the, the, um, the popularity of 1984 versus the popularity of Oliver of Well's nonfiction is that he totally gets into the nuance. If you want to know what he thought about, um, you know, the limits on, you know, the principle of free speech, where should the limits of free speech be? Like it's in there he's he's writing about it he's writing about it in wartime what is justified propaganda? you know what is justified um for the war effort against a greater evil um and what is not there's he just there's every all of these ideas he's exploring in really complicated ways, and the the idea that it's just like, well here's the big here's the sort of big bad state telling lies which is true of totalitarianism. Um, And here's everybody, and here's all the sort of good people trying to tell the truth. But of course, you know, where are the other good people in 1984? Like how good a person is Winston Smith? He's really not that heroic. There isn't some great rebellion brewing. You know, it's not like, oh, if only we could remove Big Brother, we would all be free. Like the whole book is about how mentally compromised everybody is how living in that regime sort of breaks you in different ways you either go along with it which is like a lot of his colleagues you you know you fully be- so you fully believe in it like o'brien or you believe in it enough to be a loyalist like a lot of the people who works with the ministry of truth or you are an extremely pragmatic cynic like Julia who pretends that she believes in it but doesn't believe in any of it or you have this incredibly painful dissonance that, that Winston has where there's, there's no way for him to live in you know in that society so there's no kind of there isn't a sort of I suppose Katniss from Hunger Games figure who is just sort of leading the rebellion and here come the good people and to be, I don't want to knock uh, the Hunger Games, because actually that concludes by going. Actually, the leader of the the rebellion could just it could just be another tyrant in waiting. So, you know, this is this this sort of sophistication is there in a lot of a lot of dystopian stories, but it's sort of a not it's not often there in the way that people talk about talk about Nineteen Eighty Four, and that they're all and the great challenge that you're perhaps bringing up there is. What do you do with, for example, um, disinformation about vaccines? Because there's, there's, there's a project to um, destroy sort of faith in vaccines. There is also, there are some side effects. You know, it's a tiny percentage a lot of time, but there are some side effects to vaccines. Sometimes there's a, you know, there's, there's a problem there. So what do you flag as disinformation? like saying I don't think there should have been a lockdown is not disinformation it's an it's an opinion I don't think it's a you know pretty smart opinion um then there's a completely legitimate opinion saying oh I think the schools should have been opened earlier you know that's absolutely fine but then you have the more sort of conspiracy theorist okay well it's all a plot by Bill Gates and the World Economic Foundation and you can go well that's You know that's obviously like disinformation, but there's a there's a bit in the middle. There's a sort of crossover bit where it does become really difficult. And you think, well, what should a a government or what should uh, Facebook? You know, where do where do you draw the line between just having a kind of an unorthodox opinion and something that is blatantly untrue? And you can look at the either end of that line, and you go, well, this is very clearly a legit opinion. This is very clearly a dangerous conspiracy theory you know which actually makes people you know paranoid and and potentially sort of violent if you think that you were being oppressed if you think you're living in this sort of terrible oppressive state then you would be justified in in striking back at it and so that gets very dangerous then there's the sort of danger of basically discouraging people from taking vaccines that would you know covid vaccines and therefore leading to unnecessary deaths like it's not there isn't a clear line. This is what everybody is wrestling with when it comes to, to disinformation because there's obviously dangerous disinformation and then there's obviously stuff which is just an opinion that you don't like. And there is no there is no perfect solution. I just found it absolutely mad when someone like Elon Musk, for example, comes along and goes, well, I'm just going to do free speech. And you're like, as if there have not been centuries of debate about free speech as if there's not been like you know all this you know first amendment jurisprudence about where do you draw the line and what's acceptable wasn't what he just goes yeah i'm just going to do loads of free speech and then of course he's doing censorship on behalf of the turkish government so it's actually not it's not that simple is it you know and it, it, it's never that simple and sometimes I cringe when somebody is talking absolute nonsense on Twitter and they're calling themselves like Winston Smith. Uh, or someone is quoting Orwell to me and I'll get these people going, well, clearly you don't understand Orwell because. And then they'll just give me this incredibly simplistic thing. And he goes, "And Orwell was just entirely into 100 percent free speech. Like, no, <laughs> like he wasn't. <laughs> Um, I probably do know, yeah. I don't want to be the oh, I know more guy, but I did spend quite a lot of time reading it. And Orwell was somebody, the great virtue was that he was somebody who was very aware, intensely aware of the complexities um, of, all of, of all of these issues. And I think if people perhaps read more of his, you know, essays and articles where he's really wrestling with this stuff. And didn't treat him as just the, the sword of truth guy. Because everybody thinks that everybody thinks they're on the side of truth. It's like it's too easy. It's like good and evil. It's like when everybody thinks they're good, even the evil people don't think that they're evil. <laughs> like even you see some Marvel Marvel supervillains now are written in a way where they're just like, well, no, but look, if you see it from my point of view. What I'm up to is actually for the better, you know, for the greater good. It's just I have to kill a lot of people. So the, the idea that Orwell would be in 1984 would be used to represent this very, very simplistic moral binary is a bit of a shame and it's a great disservice to him because I often refer to him when trying to work out these really complex uh, situations that we face now.
0: So what you just said is a perfect lead into. um a distinction you make in your book that I found really useful, where effectively you describe three different ways of living in 1984, mm. in airstrip Run, One, and by extension, living in a totalitarian regime. The first way of living is O'Brien's way, that there is no such thing as truth. Truth is whatever the party says it is, and that's it. Yeah. The second way is that there is such a thing as truth, that it's worth finding out what it is, and that being prevented from finding it out is a bad thing, and that's Winston's way. Yeah. And then the third way is it doesn't really matter in the end because even if you found it out, it might not be the real truth anyway, so you might as well just enjoy yourself, and that's Julia's way. Yeah. And you say in the book, totalitarian states depend on the Julia's.
1: Yeah, and that that's um it's an amazing book, uh The Future is History by Marsha Gessen, where she writes about I forget his name now, but um a Russian uh sociologist who interviewed a lot of uh people in the uh eighties. Uh so we're really sort of the, the dog days of the uh the Soviet regime. Uh, but then ended up also interviewing people. Um later in the nineties and beyond. And what he found is that most people were not really ardent believers. They were not fanatical believers because they sort of knew as you would, if you're told that you're living in a kind of uh, glorious worker state and you have to, you know, you're, you have to queue up for food and things aren't, aren't that great. And, you know, you do have television. You are aware of that. There are other, um, there are other countries in the world and there are other societies and they seem to uh, they seem to have things that you don't you are not it's very hard to then just be an ardent communist and go well this is obviously the best possible society we should have and yet you think well what you know what am i going to do about it and so you just sort of go along with it and so you do the you do the you turn up to the parades or you know the, the, spontaneous, demonstrations. Yeah, the spontaneous demonstrations spontaneous <laughs> demonstrations you know, you, you sort of mouth the words. It's a bit like, um, I remember going to church, and, and I essentially didn't believe in God, but didn't didn't kind of realise, I was too young to sort of realise it. And um, and you're just going through the motions, and you get up and you sing the hymns and you say the prayer. and uh, But it doesn't mean anything. To, it didn't mean anything to me. Um, but if you'd seen me from the outside, you'd just go, well, you know, I'd looked just the same as somebody who believed deeply in God, because I was in a space where I'm like, well, oh, this is, I suppose, what you, what you should do. And that, become, that became, the psychologist found, like a way of life. This is how people got by, and this is a lot of the time why when the power of the state collapses, hmm. you don't have loads in, in Russia and in East Germany. I mean, probably Russia is such a complicated case, but if you say look at Eastern Europe, where most of those countries have not relapsed into authoritarianism. Um, You know, you did have people that missed communism, but an awful lot of people were like instantly like, oh, good, I don't have to pretend that anymore. And that I thought was really fascinating. And I think that Julia is like an overlooked character because actually that's most people. Hmm. They just want to get through life they don't want to be political prisoners, um, but they can't be true believers. So they ju- they find a path. And that's that, I think, is what most people uh, have done in those regimes. And I think it's what most people would do if it was suddenly Britain was to become a totalitarian state. I think people would just get, you know, do what they need to do to get by without, you know, making too many foul moral compromises, without completely abandoning the sense of, uh, you know, abandoning themselves. But you do get into that space, and Hannah Arendt described this as well, where it's like it just doesn't really matter what's true.
0: Mm. I mean, something that's quite touching in the way you laid that out is that, in a way, the Julia position is the most reasonable one. It's the one that is the least extremist. It's the one that is the most geared towards an individual human's actual enjoyment of their daily life, but it also happens to be the one that offers the least resistance to mm. a damaging or a dangerous regime, right?
1: But this is what we wrestle with all the time. This is why we, people still talk about Nazi Germany and they go, well, why, why were so, do so many people go along with it? You know, Were they ardent Nazis? You know, you often find that, for example, a political figure, and it turns out that they were kind of a member of the Nazi party. Hmm. Um, now, that doesn't mean now, obviously, from our perspective, not great. But you know, you do have to make a distinction between someone who was like an ardent Nazi, you know, whose writing is just full of the most kind of like crazed anti-Semitism, and somebody where it was like, oh, well, this otherwise, I'm kind of like a, I'm like a social pariah. Now, we all like to think that in such a situation we would be members of uh the resistance there is no way we would sign up to this we would you know throw our bodies in front of the you know the the trucks that are taking the jewish people to the you know ghettos and and so on and yet history shows that that is just not true that that is not the majority and so that's the insight that julia carries she's not The point is that she's not morally admirable, but it's kind of maybe more—it's closer to what we would be. It's it's closer to what most people would be, because you know, in no in no repressive society ever has your average citizen been part of a kind of um, of a courageous resistance in which they put their life on the line rather than go along with a regime that they opposed. Because if that were the case, then all these regimes would basically, you know, collapse on day one.
0: Mm. It's uh, yeah, the the Hannah Arendt quote. Do you mind if I if I read it? Sure. Because it's, it's only a short paragraph. It's from your book, and it really, it really connects all this. She she says in it's in, it's from the origins of totalitarianism, right? Is yeah. That the book. It's yeah. Yes. In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world. The masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. Mm. And so that's kind of the the portrait of. The ultimate blend of surrender, indifference, and cynicism, because it's yeah. that what she describes is a rational position. If you think that you're being lied to, you don't fight the organs that are pumping out the babble machines or whatever they are. You you don't fight it because even fighting it seems credulous in some way, right? Mm.
1: There, are, there are quite a lot of situations. I've been writing a book about uh, sort of stories about the end of the world at the moment, and. Um, the psychologist Robert J. Lifton um, observed this really strange way in which people lived with the reality of of nuclear bombs. And and again, they ended up in this situation where they were both, it was kind of denial and cynicism and despair and disassociation. And these weren't even separate people. (laughs) It was all these things because they basically just thought, well, if I think about it, it really could destroy everything. But I don't feel like I've got any power to do anything about it. So it's going to drive me mad if I th- live with that fact for too long. And therefore, I have to find other strategies. And so I, I think that these kind of these these really psychologically complex and contradictory states are quite common when you're confronted with something. That seems both horrific and beyond your control because you, you it it gets it's this huge dissonance and it's like well how do you how do you resolve that how do you how do you live day to day and
0: and and how can we be kind enough to each other to accept the truth of that and to not judge each other for the way we deal with it right?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, but the the problem is you can't get away from the, you can't get away from judgment, really, in in a totalitarian regime. Because it's like, well, what are the what are the what are the accommodations that you are making? You know, mm. that's that's why though, this is still such a moral problem about about how to judge people who went along with the with the Nazis. Because you can go, oh, well, it's sort of understandable, and it's like, oh, but did they maybe? uh report um a Jewish neighbor? Mm. You know, is that what they did? Okay, they didn't kill anyone, but maybe they did that. And and so that's that idea that Orwell gets across is that there is literally no way to live in that society and be pure and safe. Almost the only purity is, is suicidal if you just stood up in the middle of the you know two minutes hate or whatever in the square victory square and would say down with big brother okay that would be very courageous and very pure and you would die and this is why <laughs> this is why we kind of really admire people like these sort of young germans who are members of like people like sophie charlotte members of the white rose movement but you know they died when they were 20 so okay that that is a morally uh, unchallengeable position but they did die as a result of those actions, so anything short of the almost oh, suicidal bravery is morally compromised, and there is no, res- the, you know, there's 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 sort of no way of resolving that and going well, who did Nazi Germany right? You know, who went through it? <laughs> With, you know, without- so it's almost a bizarre question to ask. Right. You're right, yeah. without a stain on the reputation, and yet the reason why we keep asking it is because we're all like, well, what would we? What would we do? And we all pretty much fantasize about being like the, the good people, the people, that, the people that worked it out. And the point of those regimes is you can't be. That's why so many uh, Russians after the invasion of Ukraine, there were so many kind of liberal Russians who had tried to find a way to, to, to you know, to respond, to live morally under Putin. And they just left. They were like, there is, it is impossible to live morally in Russia, you know, after po- after the invasion. Mm. And I totally sympathize with them. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to sort of wag my fingers at, at everybody who is still in Russia, who bites their tongue and doesn't say the, you know, doesn't call it a war and so on. But you, nor can you just be completely sort of forgiving and go, well, you know, what can you do? That's why these... That's why these uh, regimes are so monstrous, because everybody, pretty much everybody, is compromised. Everybody becomes, everybody either leaves or dies or becomes complicit.
0: Hmm. It's, I mean, in in Kevin Smith's film Clerks, there's the famous bit of dialogue about being a janitor on the Death Star, right? That you know, <laughs> yes. when, when the audiences cheer for the explosion of the yeah, Death yeah. Star, it's like all the contractors on there who are just screwing a panel to a wall and they get killed too, right? And, and the argument is, well, if you're working on the Death Star, chances are you're implicitly responsible, right? Yeah. But, but that's like, there's a maintenance guy who works on the tanks that are blowing up people's houses. There's, you know, an IT person who is making sure that the servers that pump out whatever crap is being shared online are kept running, you know, someone's buying the antivirus software from a procurement office somewhere, right? Like hmm. it's, it's like you said, all of us are compromised. Even when you try in, even in countries that are not totalitarian, like our own, we have our problems, but they're certainly not totalitarian. And if you want to have your own version of a moral life, you go to the, cl- you go to the clothing store and are you buying clothes that were made by some eight-year-old in Vietnam? <laughs> you know, right. are, e, e, there's no non-sweatshop section of a clothing store. Like in our own ways, all of us are in some way compromised, even without the totalitarianism. So it's almost a kind of permanent ennui or or kind of a baseload of tension
1: in all of yeah. us, maybe. Yeah, and I, Well, I mean, this is why we, you know, this is why I think, you know, Turn to sort of novels and, and and art, and that really the best writers are, you know, any really kind of uh, worthwhile writer is is about the is about the complexities and the compromises and the ways in which you fall short of 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 who you want to be. It's it's like it's the oldest challenges humanity It's like how to be a good person, you know. if you are politically engaged, it's like well, how to be a good person. Within the context um, of your society, and I think in order to try and live only as a good person, it's 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 so extremely hard because you know to live without any compromises because either you just go completely, you know, I suppose you can just go completely off grid, or you have the situation that a lot of the '60s radicals had, you know, who they were very. you know, very noble and brave and principled, but they burnt out and some of them just spun off into, you know, terrorism and some of them became, um, you know, just kind of liberals or even conservatives. And it, it's not, it's, it's like people, people are always trying to work this out. Um, and All you can do is try and do, you know, do the least, do the least damage you know don't it's like the google slogan which they end up dropping don't be evil (laughs) as if that was just an evil. oh we just don't do won't do the evil things just don't there's a basket of evil things you just don't touch that basket but of course it's not possible so all you're trying to do is do the is do the least harm and do these things that compromise you the, the least but that Depends on the society and how much pressure is being ratcheted up, and I feel like generally, in in, in you know, in Britain, it's not so hard. Mm. Obviously, yeah, you think, well, how is And what conditions was my iPhone made, or or whatever? But um, it's it it's certainly it's certainly easier. And so, I suppose this is a, a side note, but it does bother me when people talk about in Britain. Well, this is 1984, and it's like you know, Orwell was very aware that the challenges that he faced in Britain were different to those faced in uh, Germany or Russia. And that there is always, you always have to remember that, that however much you might hate your government, however much awful you think this is, and have all these very valid criticisms about the surveillance and the new anti-protest laws, and etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, just to remember, as he did, that there are, there are people living in situations which are almost unimaginably worse, where the moral choices they have to make are so much worse. And so that's always, I always think that's quite important. People go, this is like 1994. It's like, yeah, it, it, it touches on something, and it's good to have those thoughts, and it's good to know what to look out for. But when people go, this is 1994... As I think I say in the book, it's like, well, if, if you're allowed to read 1984 freely, <laughs> it's probably not,
0: you know. And there are countries today where you are not permitted legally to read it, right? Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, my book, I could just say yeah, that that my book was meant to at one point have Russian and chinese translations, and uh, the political situations changed and that was no longer so my book is cannot be uh cannot be read in Russia or china um I think you can read nineteen eighty four in china but it's a very it's there's a great i read a great article about it it's a much more complex situation there because china's often quite careful about what they repress and what they don't repress they understand the Streisand effect. It's It can be a little bit like that. We go, well, we let people read 1984. It's like, we can't mention Tiananmen Square, but we let people read 1984. So it's not <laughs> quite it's not quite clear cut. Um, but I think that all I, all I was very aware of like, okay, look, what are the things to look out for? What are the things that can erode a democracy? That does not mean that your democracy is already... In that state, I do not think, even with Asuela Braverman as Home Secretary or whatever, you know, I don't think that we are on the verge of becoming Nazi Germany. But it's always legitimate to kind of look at certain things and go, "Well, this is a little, you know, there is there are some echoes here, if not of the Nazis, then of other, you know, authorita- authoritarian regimes." So I suppose I kind of like I resist the hyperbole. Hmm.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I remember when the conservative party removed their online archive of like all the speeches that or something like that that had been given over the course of however many years, just overnight, that whole online archive was scrubbed from the internet as if it had never been there. And one immediately thinks of the memory hole, but that doesn't make it the same thing it you know like you said you can have these shadows these touchstones these parallels and it's always good in a way it's if we are still in the position of being able to comment on and point out where these parallels exist there is still hope <laughs> right
1: like these all these analogies should be like they're, they're the start of a conversation Un you know it, it's it's an opportunity to be more sophisticated about about this stuff, so saying something is just like 1984 is, is is no better than going. Well, this is just like Nazi Germany, you know. Yeah, it's like, well, okay, what wh- what is the comparison that is bothering you? That's totally legitimate to talk about, but that's the beginning of a conversation. It's not just uh, slapping a name on people, which is why you have to be careful about who you describe as fascists and you know who you compare to Maoists and and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, we're in this sort of uh, now. Maybe it's always been this way, but it seems particularly now in the sort of rhetorical arms race, where like everybody is. I must, you know, you just see woke is a mind virus and it's far-left fascists, which obviously some people on the right think that fascism is a far-left movement. Anyway, so you just get into this whole kind of... um, And then you you actually do feel that disintegration of reality because you're just like, do any of these words mean mean anything <laughs> does anybody really know the history that they're invoking here you know for me the whole point of history and you know, literature and the podcast of the called origin story where we try and uh you know look at the the origins of certain terms the whole point is that things are always more complicated they're always always more mm. complicated uh and that was something that Orwell found as well um and unfortunately the the pressure of of discourse, particularly when emotions are very high, is always to make things less complicated hmm. and go well. It's the good guys and the bad guys, and the this is the, this is simply true, and this is simply not true. Uh, and outside the realm of kind of you know science and, and evidence based stuff, you know, there's a load of things that are neither true nor untrue, not in a Hannah Arendt sense. That doesn't matter, but they are cont- they are legitimately contested. And, that, and that's what makes things so hard. That's what makes politics and political discourse just so uh, difficult and, and maddening sometimes um, because it's complexity upon complexity. But that's why I suppose I'm very hardline on the things that literally are not true. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm like, look, the world is very complicated, it's shades of grey and all that. And like, sometimes you've just got to go, no, 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 this this is just a thing that is definitely, this definitely happened. This is definitely what the evidence says. And this is definitely untrue because we can't, not everything is a gray area.
0: And there's always hope <laughs> there's until always, there isn't. <laughs>
1: there's, always, there's always hope. I think if you just think, you know, if, if people just think about stuff a bit more and are more aware of, I mean, not it's not just about being informed. It's being aware of your cognitive biases. And that phrase would have been, uh, made no sense to Orwell. He would not have understood it at all. But if you read an essay like Notes on Nationalism, he's talking about cognitive bias. He's talking about all the stuff that psychologists over the, you know, the decades since have outlined and gone, okay, this is how your brain leads you astray, particularly when you want something to be true. And so Orwell, even though he didn't have that psychological uh Apparatus to describe it. He knew what was going on. He was like this is all the ways in which you can trip yourself up and he included himself in that and his self-criticism is I think so underrated mm. For people that don't know enough about his life and work and they only know 1984 It's that kind of he didn't think he was a hero. He didn't think Winston Smith was a hero It's like you've got to look inside yourself and your own biases and your own weaknesses and sins, whatever the secular term for sins is, um, you know, you Tendencies. can't. Tendencies. Yeah, tend to a little bit mild. Uh, but you, you can't just look out and you can't just look, you can't just always just go, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's those guys. Sometimes it is those guys. Sometimes those guys are, you know, White supremacists with tiki torches—that's okay to criticize them, but you also have to be aware of. Well, what are your what are your tendencies? What are your mistakes? How could they go sour, mm. uh, or, or even become dangerous? Um, and that—that that is the—that is the sort of the hidden lesson of Orwell. Um, that I wish I wish people were more aware of is that it does, it, it does start with you. And self-awareness,
0: Dorian. I could not imagine a better note to end on. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Uh, that was beautifully put. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. And uh, if I'm, uh, if you have a moment, you mentioned in passing you were working on a new book. I know you also host a podcast. If you want to shoehorn in a couple of shameless plugs, I'm all ears. I do.
1: Okay, so I'm writing a book It's going to be out in 2024 called uh, Everything Must Go, which is uh, a book about stories, both in fiction and in politics and in science, about the uh, different versions of the end of the world and uh, how they are relevant now. And I also do a podcast with Ian Dunn called Origin Story, Which is uh, third season coming soon, where we take a a term or an event or a figure from history who is extremely contested and misunderstood, and uh, do a ton of research and then try and explain, um, try and explain, you know, what what is what is true, what is a myth, uh, and and sort Mm. of the nature of the argument about them. So it's it's all part. It's a very all well inspired project.
0: Wonderful. I I hope that whomever is listening checks everything out. And your book, the one we were discussing today, of course, is The Ministry of Truth, a biography of George Orwell's 1984, which uh, is a great Ron Seal book. It does exactly what it says on the tin, and it does it with panache and excellent, um, excellent prose. I mean, that's one of the things that really I loved was it's not just about a good writer. It's a well-written book about a good writer. And oh, in fact, thank you. No, I mean, for real, I'm not I'm not just blowing smoke. And th- there was a line that gave me chills when I read it, um, where you wrote, in Oceania, there are no laws, only crimes, and no distinction between thought and deed. And uh, there are no laws, only crimes, I found to be such a perfect formulation of the ultimate nightmare
1: <laughs> yeah oh well i forgot i'd forgotten that line so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very glad great glad to hear it well done me from five years ago
0: well yeah but what maybe one day i'll be a good enough writer that i can afford to forget my best lines too but <laughs> thank you so much thank you mike cheers well that's a wrap for today If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tune in for our next installment. We'll be continuing our exploration of dystopia in art and society, hopefully with a few laughs. If you're inclined to support us, please check the show notes for ways to contribute. All blessings are gratefully received. Well, to quote the late great baseball legend Yogi Berra, the future ain't what it used to be. But Orwell himself said about his most famous book, the moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen it depends on you until next time keep the fire burning we'll be back with more fuel in a week bye